OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure to have Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors, as my guest. Dan, welcome. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks, Lauren. Excited to be here. So, Dan, we've got lots of ground to cover, but let's just start with a bit about RBA and how you approach investing, as I think that'll lay the groundwork for our conversation. The firm manages nearly $16 billion in assets. You use global macro-based strategies, you invest mainly in ETFs. But what's interesting is, unlike most macro firms, RBA is not event-driven. So tell us a bit about that and the three elements that are at the core of your process. Yeah, Lauren, uh, thanks for having me again on the, on the show. So I'd say that, you know, really what distinguishes RBA is it's sort of the missing piece uh, in a lot of portfolios. If you think about sort of portfolios as a, as a, as a, combination of building blocks you know the building blocks that's in every that are in everybody's portfolios tend to be you know one you know stock picking strategies and and single security strategies i think that's where um you know the focus of the industry has been for the last you know 50 plus years is kind of stock picking um and i think that game has gotten tougher you don't have to take my word for it i mean even warren buffett and Charlie Munger, who are sort of the the poster children for stock picking, have noted many times that it used to be, you know, like shooting fish in a barrel, and it's gotten a, a lot more difficult uh, in in the last couple of decades. And so, you know, that's one source of alpha. So, for relative to that part of the portfolio, we're the macro complement to the micro. You know, we're not focused on Coke or Pepsi or individual stocks in the portfolio. We're looking for alpha from the macro, you know, drivers. You know, region, country, sector asset class and you know the history is very clear or the or the studies are very clear that um you know the number one driver of portfolio returns is not you know individual stock holdings unless you hold a very very concentrated portfolio it's typically driven by those bigger macro allocations and so you know that's an important complement being the the macro to the micro but we're also the the tactical to the strategic you know a lot of people have this approach that they want to take a, a passive approach to their investing which you know probably 90 percent of the time actually it works out better than active because of the fees because of you know the, the the it's the landscape has gotten more tr uh, difficult for traditional you know alpha you know because of that you know having a strategic approach can actually be very very uh, useful and, and can be very good for a lot of investors but relative to the strategic clearly we see a lot of opportunities in the macro to be tactical you know you mm -hmm. just think about last year 
you know, there's huge opportunity to, you know, avoid some of the brisk areas of the markets, you know, look for things that diversify and avoid interest rate risk, right? So I think that um, where the where the macro to the micro, where the tactical to the strategic, and, and our process is really based on, you know, fundamentals, uh, which is quite different and not based on event-driven or politics or things like that. So you mentioned the process, and I know RBA is very process-driven. And at its core, you look at corporate profits, liquidity, and sentiment of valuation as the, I guess, the primary factors uh, influencing market trends over time. Is that right? Yep, that's absolutely right. And those are, you know, the three uh, fundamental categories: corporate profits, liquidity, and and sentiment slash valuations that have been over time been been shown to be the most consistent drivers of performance of not just overall markets, but works what works within markets. And so I think, you know, that's the tactical element I was referring to is, you know, based on our work, your portfolio should look nothing like itself, you know, during a profit cycle acceleration when profit fundamentals are getting better versus when profits are deteriorating. Uh, and so you'll see that tactical nature of our portfolio really change. Most people's portfolios tend to have a static bias. And I think that's what gets a lot of managers into trouble is having that static you know, bias, which may be the right bias over a 10-year period. But oftentimes what you find is that cyclical drivers of performance often overwhelm you know, the secular drivers over a one or two-year period. So um, being conscious of that and taking advantage of those opportunities, I think, can add a lot of value you know, to people's portfolios. Let's spend another moment just on the active side of things. So your top-down macro, not bottom-up stock selection. And even though you use passive ETFs, you're very much active managers. And I think people often equate ETFs with passive investing. But at RBA, you have this term that you call <laughs> PACTIVE, which is, I, I'm assuming, the active management of passive investments. Maybe just spend a minute or two talking about the, the role that being active is even with a passive instrument. Well, I, Lauren, I think the thing that people don't realize is that even if you want to be passive, you know, every, every, you know, there's always an, a very, uh, there's a very active decision being made in the portfolios. Let's just say you want a 60, 40, you know, portfolio, um, you know, that in itself is an active decision, decision, but going beyond that, what is your 60, you know, in, in a traditional 60-40, there's 60% equities. Is that uh, is that the S&P 500 as your benchmark? Is that the Acqui, you know, global stock market as your benchmark? Is that NASDAQ? I mean, everything you do has an element. And S&P 500 is clearly large cap focused, so you're completely missing out on the smaller cap stocks. And so, you know, I think the, the reality is that, you know, the you know, the company that's most well known for sort of changing the game landscape in terms of passive ETFs is Vanguard. But Vanguard has, you know, hundreds of different ETFs, all of which are quote unquote passive. And so what we try to do is take a very thoughtful and deliberate approach to, to adding alpha, you know, through, you know, the active management of passive vehicles, as you said. And it's the perfect vehicle for us to express macro views because ETFs are less focused on individual stock alpha or individual security alpha. You know, we're actually able to focus on the bigger macro drivers of portfolios, whether that's, you know, regional exposure, asset allocation, sector exposure, style exposure. You know, those are really the things that you can that are ETFs are are made to, to give you exposure to. So it's a great vehicle uh, for us to do that with. 
So let's dive into a topic that's on a lot of investors' minds, and that is, are we in a bull market? And actually, the headline on this weekend's uh, Barron's cover story read, don't fear the bull market, why stocks are headed over. And I was just Googling before we kind of started the call just to see uh, how many headlines there are. And there are headlines aplenty about the new bull market. Last week, you put out some research on how new bulls are born. Uh, but you also say that, you know, despite all these headlines declaring this is a new bull market, the reality is that we're in a profits recession. So talk to us a bit about that. What are the headwinds uh, you're seeing and where do you stand on, on the new bull market? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, first of all, I think, you know, the jury's out. You know, this this has, uh, you know, certainly been a very strong rally and, and, and has the potential, you know, to blossom into a full-blown bull market. But I don't think it's, you know, it, it's fair to say that just because it's gone up 20%, you know, you can make that declaration. I think, you know, if you, the reality is if you look at the last, you know, three uh, bear markets, um, you know, two of the three, uh, you had, you know, rallies of more than 20% that turned out to be, you know, parts of the bear market. So bear market rallies, so head fakes that felt like bull markets. I'm sure if you were to go back, there's probably numerous, you know, articles being written about declaring the bull market starts in those periods, but ultimately they end up petering out. So I think that, you know, just focusing on a number, and it's not just on the bull side, you know, the, even the definition of a bear market is pretty arbitrary because, you know, a lot of people can consider the 1990, you know, market decline as a bear market, but the reality is actually like 19.9%. So I actually didn't even meet the threshold uh, that people use as 20%. So it's kind of a squishy term, both on the, on the bull market side and the bear market side. But I think that, you know, the terminology aside, I think, you know, you have to ask yourself, is this a period where you're going to have a sustained, you know, period of, you know, upward trend in the markets? However you want to define that, I think that ultimately that's what people are looking for. And I think, you know, there's from a, I looked at this in the report that you referred to, Lauren, and, you know, first off, people are using all these tactical, you know, measures. And, and, and what I found is that there's really no sort of measure whether it's the magnitude of the increase you know how long it's been since you made a new low or anything like that that gives you any indication um, that the bull market has has started you know the one technical aspect that should give people a little bit of pause here is that this would be you know the first bull market to start without breadth now a lot of been people have been you know talking about breadth and the narrowness of this market but the reality is bull markets do tend to start with a lot of breadth um, mm -hmm. so whether going back to 1990 2002 2009 2020 you had the breadth that was dominating things and so the equal weighted s p 500 in every instance was outperforming the overall um, the market weighted s p 500 that's not the case this time around um, and so i think that you know you know, you really want to see that breadth start to broaden out. You know, to be fair, you've seen that in the last couple of weeks start to broaden out and, and really you want to see that continue. But in order for that to continue, I think you really need to see the fundamentals come through. Lauren, you mentioned, you know, that the fundamentals we focus on are profits, liquidity and sentiment. There's a nice handy table in the report that you referenced where we actually looked at the dynamic of profits, liquidity and sentiment, not just at the market bottoms, but also, you know, seven, seven months into 
uh, these historical bull market starts, which is kind of where we are today, seven and a half months. And in, in what you see historically is that you didn't need every single one. You didn't need profits, liquidity, and sentiment to be supportive of markets. But generally, you had two out of three or at least a big one from one. Really, this would be the first unprecedented bull market start where you had you know all three kind of going the wrong direction. Um, so just in the, in the table, it lays us out, but we are in a profit recession and we think see that profit recession deepening from here before it gets better. Um, that's not that uncommon, but the fact that liquidity is also tightening at the same time and more specifically, the Fed is still tightening, which we'll hear from later this week, is still in the tightening mode. And the market, if you're focusing on the S&P 500 at least, is still far from cheap. You know, historically, you've had a cheap market and uh, and positive liquidity and positive Fed policy. Without those ingredients, this would truly be an unprecedented start to a new bull market. That's really, I think it's really uh, helpful to have that sort of healthy dose of, dose of skepticism. And I'm so glad you mentioned the narrow breadth of the market. I was actually going to ask you about that. There have been lots of headlines about sort of the bad breadth of the market. Um, <laughs> and you've touched on it, so uh, thanks for raising that. Uh, just a quick reminder to the audience, if you have questions for Dan, please do submit them in the Q&A feature, as I'll be sure to leave some time at the end for audience uh, Q&A. But as I uh, mentioned earlier, RBA does not pick individual stocks, so Dan won't be commenting on specific companies. So Dan, let's pivot to AI and tech stocks versus the rest of the market. Um, love it or hate it, AI is here to stay. So very broad question for you. You know, What is your take on AI? And how about things like applications like ChatGBT? Are you a fan? Do you use it? What's your take? Yeah, uh, Lauren. First of all, I, I want to you know preface everything with the fact that I'm a I'm a huge lover uh, of technology. What I tell people is, if there's a gadget out there, you know, I probably own it. Um, whether that's a software related thing or or hardware, um, you know, whether it's biohacking or or not, you know, I think that a lot of these technologies are seeing where we are in a you know very you know fast paced. Uh, uh, period of technological transformation and you know whether it's solar uh, electronic vehicles ai um, blockchain i i see almost on every front there's going to be huge uh adoption huge implications and huge growth in terms of you know the applications for a lot of these technologies so i think that's you know first and foremost important to recognize but i think that you know what investors i often forget to do is to separate the story you know from the investment and i oftentimes you know that you can have a great story but it doesn't always turn out to be a, a great investment i mean you go back to the internet bubble um literally you know call i mean office it called the internet bubble you go to that period and had you bought markets near the peaks uh how you bought you know tech related stocks or internet related stocks at the peaks you know in most cases it took you at least 14 years to make your money back um so it clearly wasn't a great investment because people forgot you know what they were paying you know for for the story and if you're overpaying for a story even if the story comes true you know it doesn't turn out to be a great investment at rba we have a saying that returns are greatest where capital is scarce. 
Uh, if capital is not scarce, I mean, I think you really have to question, you know, the investment itself and whether that's already priced in to the stocks. And and, and there's another important analogy to be, made, to be made when you talk about AI, you know, with the Internet, because, you know, even if the Internet is or sorry, even if AI is transformative, even if this is the new growth area that every company is going to have to spend on, you know, clearly that was true of the Internet, you know, in spades. And what people often forget is if you go back to the, you know, that period in the early stages of the, uh, you know, internet, uh, you had, you know, tech, tech related business investment. So uh, tech related CapEx actually fell 20% in 2000, 2001 over that two year period. So, you know, the point there is even if you have a huge runway for growth and even if companies are going to have to invest, make these big investments, you know, sometimes the cyclical aspects of where we are in the economy and the cycle can make it, you know, make those spending investments decline. Because if, if companies are seeing their growth slow and their profits slow, you know, they're probably going to tighten up their belts. And even if the right thing to do is spend on AI in the long term, you know, they may have to defer some of that spending just to stay to stay afloat. So I think it's important to sort of separate the story from the investment, whether it's crypto, whether it's uh, whether it's EVs, whether it's solar and whether it's AI. So, again, I, I, we're, I, I think it's going to have big applications. But the other thing that I just I, it's probably worth you know mentioning is that to me and i'm certainly not an expert at this so if someone comes in with a comment that educates me i'm happy to take this edu that education but for me you know ai seems a little bit more incremental than than a game changer in that you know the engine behind ai you know something that's been a focus for a while which is essentially machine learning taking huge huge amounts of data and then coming up with the relationships and answering questions, right? To me, that's kind of, you know, that was the, the machine learning uh, story. AI is the cute interface that makes it easy to, to interact with for, for everyday people. So, you know, clearly that's a huge help and uh, the easier it is to interact with AI, you know, the broader the applications can be, but the true, you know, engine and behind it is, is to me, you know, has been around for a while, obviously getting better and better. So let's talk a bit about how your position, your portfolios are positioned, given your views. I know RBA has, uh, sort of thinks of the market as a seesaw. One of the mm -hmm. uh, pieces of research I saw said, on, you know, mm -hmm. one side of the seesaw sit the highly speculative growth sectors, and on the other side sit virtually everything else in the global yeah. equity markets. And the note said your positions, your portfolios are positioned for the latter. So talk a bit about how you are positioning today to, uh, I guess, take advantage of where you see the, the prospects. Yeah, Lauren, I think the, the, the thing that investors always need to do uh, when making investment decisions, no matter who you are, is really identify uh, what your time horizon, the time horizon is that you're, defend, that you're investing for and make sure that your process aligns with that. Um, and I, I just don't think that people do that enough. Oftentimes, people are using valuation to make very short-term investment decisions, which makes no sense. You know, valuation is a terrible timing indicator, but it is a very, very powerful predictor of long-term returns, which is why, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, essentially tries to have an infinite time horizon. Um, because his only input is essentially valuation, doesn't care about what, you know, growth is going to do in the next year or two. And, you know, over the long 
term, you know, he'll he usually do well, you know, if he buys the right, you know, his valuation analysis is correct. Conversely, you know, if you're a, if you're, you know, fast paced, short time horizon hedge fund, you know, using those metrics makes no sense. You want to focus on, you know, incremental uh, information, you know, as, as the big driver, identify event, identify a catalyst, and then make sure you have the best information on which way that catalyst is going to go. So for, to, to answer that question, Lauren, about, you know, the outlook and our positioning, you know, I think we have to make a distinction between, you know, the next call it uh, five to 10 months and the next five to 10 years. Now our portfolios are going to tend to be a, a, a bigger reflection of the next five to 10 months, really, you know, the cyclical aspects uh, of what's happening out there um, with a with an eye toward, you know, the longer term opportunities. So in the near term, as we, we've alluded to before, we are in a profits recession and that profits recession is getting deeper. That in and of itself tells you that you don't want Historically, you don't want a lot of cyclicality in the portfolio, and you do want to focus on higher quality uh, investments. And so to that end, a lot of the things that we hold in the portfolio are not that economically sensitive and are at the top of the quality standards. So, you know, broadly, uh, you know, within the equity side of the world, we are overweight uh you know, classically defensive sectors like healthcare, staples, utilities. From a style perspective, we're overweight high-quality dividend payers. Uh, and then broadening out from an asset class perspective, we have a little gold in the portfolio. We have a lot of things that uh, basically act like cash, high-quality, uh, short, short-term or, or, or floating rate fixed income. And we pair that with, with, with treasuries. So basically, it doesn't really get much more high quality than the things that I mentioned there. But as you look out um, over the longer term, call it the next five to 10 years, you know, that's really where, you know, I think it's clear, you know, that, you know, the leadership is changing, you know, bull mar bear markets always signal a change in leadership. So you can argue whether the bear market's over or not, which we just did. Um, but you can't argue whether we've had the signal last year. And so when you know that, and you know, the leadership of the last 10 years was essentially U.S. large cap growth or technology or innovation, however you want to define it, you know, the next 10 years is probably going to look very different or however long the next cycle lasts. So that's where the everything else comes into play. And I mentioned earlier that valuation is a very, very strong predictor of long-term returns. If you just look at valuation alone, you see that there's basically, there are basically two expensive things out there. One of them's crowded and expensive and the other is just kind of expensive. You know, the thing that's crowded and expensive out there is that prior cycle leadership of U.S. large cap growth or technology. You know, that's the only real area of the market that's, you know, trading so expensive. I mean, you know, the tech related sectors trade at, you know, 25 or 30 times earnings. The rest of the world, you know, trades at like 12 or 13 times earnings. And there's a lot of things out there that trade at single digit multiples. So if you're picking things out of a hat, chances are you pick something out of a hat at random, it's going to be cheap. Um, so those are the things that, you know, you want to own for the long term. The other thing that I mentioned was uh, a little bit expensive today is defensives. Now, I mentioned that we hold you know, defensive assets in the portfolio. But if you look at this point in the cycle, um, defensives are always expensive uh, going into a, a slowdown. Um, but they always that doesn't stop them from outperforming. So I don't want to hold defensives for the next 10 years. 
Um, but having them for the next 10 years or however long it is until profit fundamentals start to improve, you know, I think makes makes a lot of sense here. So um, we're sort of focused on high quality defensive positioning in the near term with some areas of targeted offense, which we can talk about later. Um, but then over the long term, I do we do get very excited about, you know, the opportunities in owning essentially the opposite of the last cycle. So if the last cycle was U.S. large cap and growth, you know, I think, you know, people want to think about over the next decade, you know, having more exposure to international, to small caps, to value inflation beneficiaries. Now, I, I get that there's a thousand and one reasons that you want, you don't want to own these things, but people need to go back to the start of bull markets and remember go you know what the, the the prevailing sentiment for that future leadership was at the beginning of bull markets no one wanted to own the us going into this last bull market people want to own emerging markets because the us had come off of a decade of negative returns and had led the world into a financial crisis right so every cycle you can go back and look at the beginning and with the benefit of hindsight know what the leadership was and you'll find that in most cases, the leadership was the thing that you obviously want to avoid, obvious in quotes, because obviously you wanted to own them. So people need to question the obvious trade today. And I think the obvious trade is to avoid international small caps, value and, and inflation. So you mentioned international and many of us uh, have a home bias. And so we issue uh, international, but, you know, international is a broad category. Just give us some specifics. Um, how are you feeling about China? What do you think about Japan? And uh, we have a lot of questions coming in. So I'm going to sort of race through this question and have maybe one or two more questions. And then I'm going to get to audience questions after that. Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> right now, um, as I mentioned, as we position for the cycle, um, and the near term, probably the biggest driver of our overweight to international uh, is really just trying to add diversification to portfolios. You know, the, we talked a little bit about the narrowness of this market. The market is so concentrated right now that if you if you want to have diversification in your portfolios, you can't just be passive. You have to be active about adding diversification to the portfolio. Otherwise, you know, just the top three sectors, you know, uh, that are tech related in the S&P 500 make up basically half of the value of the overall S&P 500. So when you buy the S&P 500 today, you're basically making a bet on tech. And that's not diversification. Diversification isn't the number of assets in your portfolio. It's how they move together. And I think that those three sectors are going to be very correlated. And so you're not really getting the diversification. So, it, you know, we want to actually add diversification and reduce risk to the crowded, expensive parts of the market. And in doing that, and because that part of the market is so big within the U.S., it's hard to, to significantly have underexposure to that part of the market without being underweight the entire region. So I'd say that in the near term, that's the bigger driver uh, of our overweight to international, which is, you know, the polar opposite of where we were, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, where we were, were 30 to 40 percent overweight the U.S. because no one wanted to own it. Um, and the fundamentals were actually better than what people were were fearing. You know, now it's kind of the opposite story. Um, so right now in this environment, I mentioned that we're in a, a period where we're in a profit recession, liquidity is tightening. Uh, you know, in that type of environment, we want to focus on those higher quality uh, 
and and cheaper ideally assets and i think that developed international developed markets whether that's europe or japan you know are you know meet that criteria so they're also it's important to point out um experiencing profits recessions and tighten liquidity it's just you know they're actually are seeing a little bit more resilient earnings trends than we are uh here in the us the one sort of exception you know to the focus on high quality and cheaper areas of the world um is china it is cheap i mean it's basically like at a a 60 or something discount to the us um but from a profits and liquidity perspective there's no other region in the world like it you know while the rest while almost every region in the world is in a worsening profits recession and tighten seeing tightened liquidity you know china has been in a profits recession you know for you know over a year it's been terrible it you know they they basically had this profits recession they had a property crisis they had you know they never had came out of covid and they had regulation on a lot of their major industries now things are actually starting to get better and so you know they're actually on their way to exiting their profits recession profits are accelerating and at the same time liquidity is actually improving it's timely that we're having this uh this this call today because we actually just overnight got word that you know china eased again and lowered its interest rates uh, very few places in the world are lowering their interest rates as we've seen and we'll see you know later this week um, but china is one of them so you're seeing credit growth accelerate liquidity improve and profits accelerate that's a great combination uh fundamental factors especially when nobody wants to own it so that's that's an area of opportunity that we see uh for the near term now we're not married to that if if those profit and liquidity fundamentals change as they have over the last few years and where we were had almost no exposure to china um you know then our, our weightings will change so this is not a call to you know own them for the next 10 years that might be the case um, but those fundamentals have to hold up for that to be true so you mentioned china's interest rates and of course all eyes are on the fed which is meeting uh, today and tomorrow uh, this morning we had some good news the headline cpi number for may dropped to four percent year over year and that was a significant slowdown uh, from april so very quickly before we go to the audience questions uh do you think the pause uh, the fed will hit the pause button uh, and very quickly your outlook on interest rates and inflation yeah, Lauren, I think, you know, this is not an, uh, a, a huge area of focus for me, and I wouldn't consider myself a Fed watcher. Uh, I think they probably pause. Um, that's what the, the 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 Fed speakers over the last few weeks have, have alluded to. So it seems like, you know, they probably will pause, uh, and, and pause is important rather than, um, than, than, you know, skip is probably more of what the the message that they're going to try to relay to markets and that, you know, it's still um, they're not done um, and inflation continues to persist, that they'll continue to hike. Um, I, you know, but there's a chance they'll hike. I mean, if you, you, you noted that, you know, headline CPI came down, it's running at 4% uh, versus a year ago, you know. Uh, core CPI, excluding you know food and energy, you know is actually very very sticky at 5.3. Came in above expectations, um, and even just the month over month, if you were to analyze that rate of change, you're you're talking about a, a inflation core inflation over five percent, and so that is very far from you know sustainable for clear signs that they're reaching their two to three percent goal. So I think their inclination is whether it's to stay tight <clears throat> or add a couple more hikes later this year. Um, they, they really are, they're not happy with where inflation is either way you cut it. Now, 
I don't actually think it matters that much. I think, you know, the Fed is no longer in the driver's seat, especially now that it's it's less in the forecasting game. You know, you recall, you know, a little over a year ago, you know, that they were talking about transitory. And that's where they were saying inflation's high today, but we expect it to go away. So we'll adjust our policy based on our forecasts. Now, you know, they're very passively, you know, data dependently, you know, reacting to the inflation numbers, which is one of the official lagging indicators out there. So, you know, my point is that the Fed is a lagging indicator, you know, managing to lagging indicators, and that's not going to get you ahead of the game when you're focused on markets. And the reality is that whether or not the market's off here by 25 or 50 basis points, I don't think that there's a big fundamental. It doesn't really matter from a fundamental basis. The, the, the reality is uh, the, the Fed is, is, is close to the end of its hiking cycle and growth is still slowing. And historically, when you've had that combination of factors, uh, interest rates, on the, particularly on the long end of the curve, have tended to fall. Even if you go back to the 70s, which is a hyperinflationary decade, you know, you had these periods where things were slowing and the Fed was more or less done or on pause. You know, that combination of factors led to some pretty strong returns from long term treasuries, which is why, you know, we think long term interest rates will come down and why we want to have exposure to the beneficiaries of that, which are, you know, essentially long term treasuries. Great. We've got so many questions that have come in. Uh, and I, my apologies if you've sent in a question and we don't get into it. There are just so many and we don't have a whole lot of time left. So there'll be sort of a, a lightning round of, of questions. So first one from Steve, who says, Dan, you said we are in a profit recession. Are you predicting a decline in the markets in the short term? If so, what is your prediction for the S&P 500 for the next six, uh, three to six months? Yeah, so short term, I mean, uh, you know, our time horizon is not short term. So we're, you know, our investment time horizon is, you know, a year or two. Uh, but I, and, and it's less about making the calls, right? As investors, we're really trying to weigh risk and reward. And all we're saying is the, the risks are very high, you know, relative to the potential reward out there until, you know, those fundamentals start to improve. And so, you know, what we're saying is that, you know, you have a, a bubble within markets that's in the process of deflating, yet despite that, you have, you know, deteriorating profit and liquidity fundamentals. If that's true, you know, that's historically when you've seen the big leg down in markets. So that doesn't necessarily mean you're definitely going to get one, you know, but the risk of that is much, much higher. It's kind of like, you know, speeding and drunk driving, you know, you can get to your home safe, you know, but there's a lot of ways that that, you know, doing that can go wrong. And so you're just trying to be a little bit more cautious and, and be a sort of a good driver behind the wheel here. Uh, we don't put out year end targets, probably the best, best thing about um, not being on the sell side anymore is not putting out those targets. But I, I'd say that, you know, you want to be cautious here until you see the, you know, the, the either profits, liquidity or sentiment, you know, support the markets right now it's a rare moment where you actually don't have any uh, you don't have any of them uh, really being very supportive here so that's why we're a little bit focused on being cautious and and more importantly avoiding the bubble so ram says you mentioned the 60 40 portfolio uh, and construct and constructing the 60 portion what would you recommend to build this part considering the long term yeah, if the 60, uh, I would say for the long term is kind of what I alluded to before. 
Uh, I think that, you know, I think the leadership of the next six years, you know, if you're focused on long-term opportunities, you want to go where, where capital is scarce. Uh, so capital is clearly not scarce in AI. Um, it's probably in the, the areas that have been left for dead in the market. So I, as I've alluded to before, that's international, that's small cap, that's value, that's inflation beneficiaries. You know, pretty much every one of those categories categories trades at somewhere between a 30 and 60 point percent discount uh, to the overall S&P. Um, so I think that's the opportunity out there. That's where I should be. I would be rotating, you know, the portfolio, let's say over the next couple of years. Now, why I say rotate over the next couple of years is I think if you buy today and you hold your nose and close your eyes, you'll be very, very happy with your statements 10 years from now. Um, but you might be concerned about the near term volatility, given that you know, international small caps value tend to have a lot of cyclicality and we are in a cyclical downturn. You know, so it might be choppy in the near term, which is why you don't see them as huge, huge overweights in our portfolio today. Um, but I think as you think about positioning the portfolio as a long term, thinking about shifting exposures toward those areas, because I think that they're, you know, at least, you know, most of them will be a big part of that leadership of the next cycle. So Dan asks, what benchmarks do you use for your portfolios? And I imagine there must be several, but I'll let you <laughs> answer that one. Yeah, we have a, a lot of different uh, portfolios. And so, you know, what we try to do is we try to, you know, look, slice and dice the world uh, and analyze the world. Um, and then, you know, take that intellectual capital and put it into the portfolio, the constraints of any given portfolio. Uh, so if people have risk tolerances, geographical, uh, you know, focuses, you know, then we can, because we have a macro view, we can take that view of the world and, and sort of squeeze it into whatever and the benchmark will be appropriate to that. But I'd say that our flagship portfolios, you know, the equity sides tend the equity benchmark tends to be global in nature. And so the standard for uh, global equity benchmarks is, is AC, the ACWI, ACWI, which used to stand, no longer stands for the All Country World Index. Uh, and on the bond side, um, there's the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index. Um, that's, that's what we focus on as our proxy for uh, the bond market. So you did touch on breadth earlier, and Darian asks, uh, will AI further narrow the breadth of the NASDAQ, and how will that affect the future of estimating what constitutes a bear and a bull market? Mm. Um, I, I do think that uh, <clears throat> it already has, I mean, clearly uh, narrowed the breadth of the market, whether that is going to continue. I personally, you know, think that the the concentration and the narrowness of the market has gotten so stretched that even even if you're a bull on these things, you know, technically it's very difficult for that to continue. So more likely than not, and what you've seen, you know, again in the last couple of weeks is that that breadth is starting to to broaden out a lot, which is I think necessary. When I think about, and this is a bit of a tangent, you know, the issue with this narrow leadership in the market is that either way the economy goes or profits go, you know, there's risks on both sides. You know, either the economy gets worse and profits deteriorate further and people are underestimating the cyclicality the economic sensitivity of how you know these their profits of these companies will already, will get hurt um and so as you as those earnings disappoint in that negative scenario you know there's a catch down you know from that part of the market now in a scenario where things get better and growth starts to reaccelerate you know i think and this is kind of what we've seen in the last week or so uh you know there's you know 
there's hundreds, if not thousands of different, you know, areas of the market and companies, you know, that are, that are going to benefit more, that are more cyclical, um, and will see their earnings growth accelerate faster, yet trade at, you know, a third of the valuation uh, of most of these stocks. And so in that scenario, you have this big catch up rally um, in other in the other areas of the market. So I think there's risks on both sides. Um, I think I, I got away from the question, but I, I, I think that the narrow the narrowness of the market is unlikely to persist, you know, for a long period of time. Um, and so I don't know that it changes any standards around what a what constitutes a bear market or a bull market. Final audience question, I guess in a minute or less, uh, Martin says, <clears throat> Dan, what are your thoughts on the oil and gas sector? Yeah, that's a great example of something that depends on your time horizon. In the near term, uh, we're a little bit more cautious because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's a de demand is going to be the big swing factor. And in a slowing growth environment, which is what we see in the data today, you know, demand for oil will continue to slow. That's going to put downward pressure on prices and that's going to put downward pressure on volumes and that's going to put down pressure on profits. Um, so that's the near term. But I think on the long term basis, we're hugely, hugely bullish. This is one of the areas that the market's left for dead. And we do believe that there's a structural uh, there's going to be a structural period of higher inflation, and that's going to probably come with higher commodity prices. And so these are great uh, things to have in the portfolio to protect the portfolio from that that likely scenario, uh, secular story, as well as the fact that they're just good investments. You have good companies that are trading at dirt cheap valuations that nobody wants to own, and their profits will probably come in better over the long term than people think. And on that note, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. And thank you, Dan, for joining me today. We hope you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Jessica Hall will have a conversation with Annie Ackerley, Managing Director and Head of BlackRock's Retirement Group, about the silent crisis of retirement and how older adults risk outliving their money and not having enough care in place as they age. Thank you all for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. Thanks, everybody. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.